Welcome to the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia podcast series. My name is Shanka Siva. I'm a radiation oncologist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne, Australia. And in this podcast, we discuss the management of stage three non-small cell lung cancer. This has been generously sponsored by AstraZeneca, which we have sent our thanks. And I'm joined today by Associate Professor Rachel Wong, who's a Deputy Director of Oncology at Eastern Health. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Shanka. Thank you for the invitation from TOGA and to AstraZeneca, our sponsors. I'm also joined by Professor Drew Moganaki, who's a Chief of Thoracic Oncology in the Department of Radiation Oncology at UCLA. He's also the Stanley Lesman and Nancy Stark and Doe Chair in Thoracic Radiation Oncology Research. Welcome, Drew. Jacob, it's always a pleasure. I'm glad to be a part of this. So, Drew, I understand that you're in Australia at the moment. Is that right? Yeah, it's been lovely, you know, seeing the countryside, meeting the people and, and learning all the uh, interesting sayings of the Aussies. And you actually might be even coming to Melbourne very soon. I can't wait. I think you, you haven't arrived unless you've taken a picture in front of that spectacular building of yours. Fantastic. So, you know, we have been looking at some of your Australian sayings. Uh, you've been posting on Twitter, as you mentioned. Today, we're going to throw a curly question or two at you, perhaps even a doozy. I think we might even start with one of the most difficult questions we have in the management of stage three non-small cell lung cancer, which we often divide into inoperable and operable stage three. So can I ask you, what does define an inoperable stage three non-small cell lung cancer? <laughs> Come on, I thought we'd start with the easy ones first. You know, it, we're, we're at a time now where it, it really is the most critical question because patients with stage three lung cancer are either going to be treated with drugs and surgery or drugs and radiation. And I think it's unfortunate we don't have a thoracic surgeon on the call here, although I think I can paraphrase kind of some of the key take-home you know, issues for the audience. And also, it'd be nice if a respiratory physician was also involved. I'm learning that in this country, they really have an important role, at least the academic centers that I've been visiting. I think there's really only one test that needs to be ordered to determine whether a patient's operable or not, and that is a thoracic surgery consult. A board-certified thoracic surgeon who's good, whose outcomes are publicly available to be seen, whose in-hospital 30-day mortality rate is around 0%, whose 30 to 90-day out-of-hospital out mortality rate is below 1%. If I have a surgeon who, who has that sort of efficacy and success safety track record, I'm comfortable with them telling me when they can operate and not, but I don't think that the decision ends with just whether they can operate or not. I think then we now then need to talk about the drug components and if it all works out, they can go down the drug and surgery route. But sometimes even just because a surgeon can operate, that might not be the best treatment option for them because we also have to talk about stage and nodal burden. So to press you on that, you raised two important points. You raised the point of stage and nodal burden. So it's not just about how technically skilled the surgeon is? Yeah, it seems like, you know, I guess anything can be operated on, right? But will it benefit the patient? And if we want to provide evidence-based therapies for our patients, you know, we have to, if we're leaning on the clinical trial data that says that drugs and surgery are good, we should really be looking at the patients who were enrolled in those trials. And as far as I understand, I don't think any patients with stage 3B or 3C were ever enrolled in those trials. So yeah, we have to really think about these issues when extrapolating data so that we're not just shooting from the cuff. And you also mentioned about the tolerability of the systemic therapies that go alongside it. So Rachel, maybe I'll ask you a question. When we're talking about stage three, operable, inoperable, how do you factor in the potential systemic therapies that can be sandwiched in with either option? Yeah, so I guess Drew's touched on, I guess, 
so the technical aspects of things, but we need to take into account when we're giving our systemic therapies that the patient factors in terms of what systemic agents are they going to be able to tolerate. Obviously, the patient's wishes are always paramount, particularly some of our more elderly patients may not want to go down the pathway of, of surgery or even radical chemo, chemo radiation. But in the era that we're in now where immunotherapy is an established standard of care, certainly in the inoperable stage threes that we're giving radical chemo radiation to, but now we're looking at the, the data from Checkmate 816 and the more recent Nadine 2 data that came out at, I think at, at World Lung that it, I think, Shanka, you might have attended. I didn't get the opportunity to go. We need to think about which patients can tolerate immunotherapy uh, in, the, in the new adjuvant setting and, and the adjuvant setting with some of the, the other data that, that's coming out. And then obviously we've got the old chemotherapy component, cisplatin, carboplatin argument. It's interesting to see in a lot of the neoadjuvant chemo IO studies that carboplatin paclitaxel is being used a bit more frequently, which probably wouldn't be necessarily our standard you know, for those patients in the, in the adjuvant setting, particularly the, uh, the non-squain. So we need to think about tolerability of the chemotherapy agents comorbidities, contraindications to chemo and, and IO when we're thinking about the, the holistic approach to managing the patient. And I think one thing that's really nice about stage three lung cancer, if you've got it, is um, multidisciplinary nature of treating the disease. And Drew's already talked about having our respiratory physicians involved in our surgeons. And I wasn't at the Toga ASM, but I think there was some talk about disparities of care across Australia, particularly for, you know, rural and regional patients. And, and that obviously comes into account for, for a lot of our patients that we look after. Excellent. So let's let's turn our attention to, say, maybe a multi-station N2 patient with no, uh, nodal disease in the mediastinum with stage 3 disease. And the patient may, for example, receive chemoradiation therapy and immunotherapy afterwards. Let's ask, can I ask you how do you manage the toxicities potentially? Maybe we can ask that with you, Rachel, for immunotherapy-related toxicities. How do you differentiate between radiation and immunotherapy-related pneumonitis, for example, and how do you manage it? Yeah, I mean, that that's always a, a tricky one. I mean, I think the first thing we do when people have had chemoradiation is before we would even consider you know, immunotherapy is we would do a, a post-treatment CT scan, you know, looking for, for early pneumonitis, but obviously a lot of the radiation pneumonitis will come on after we've commenced the development because we obviously want to start that within an appropriate window. So a lot of it comes along with close monitoring and we've seen the change certainly on the, the PBS recently from the standard two weekly, which was used in the Pacific trial, to now we can use development four weekly. And so the window and the gap between seeing patients and reviewing them has become longer uh, and so those early signs and symptoms of pneumonitis like that cough or that very mild shortness of breath there's a, a longer window before the patients might report that to us or when we see them and so I think some of us are, are fortunate enough to have fantastic lung clinical nurse specialists who are a point of call for patients but unfortunately across Australia they're, they're relatively scarce. We actually had this very question come up quite recently patient who had had chemo radiation had actually some cardiac toxicity during that chemo radiation course which I think you might be speaking about later Shanka but and then you know it was about halfway through his Devalimab when he started to get a little bit of cough and his CT scan that was performed to evaluate that showed pneumonitis and then the question really was is this radiation pneumonitis or is it you know related to his immunotherapy and when we reviewed his films at our multidisciplinary meeting I think it was quite clear with the pattern of pneumonitis that we were seeing that this was more related to radiation than his immunotherapy, but it becomes a bit of a moot point when someone's symptomatic from their pneumonitis because we're not going to keep giving this person immunotherapy. And, and the treatment is relatively similar in terms of we would give 
high dose steroids, but I guess if it's an IRAE, so related to the development, we need to be very cognizant of other immune related, you know, effects that may also happen, you know, in in parallel. So Drew, just broadly speaking for maybe our non-thoracic oncology experts, what do you think that irradiation related pneumonitis might potentially look like as opposed to immune related uh, pneumonitis on those port films? You know, that's a really good question. It's something I think about for many, many years. How do I help medical oncologists who maybe have never even visited a radiation oncology clinic or looked at a treatment plan? How do I communicate with them the nuances of how we assess these things? And the beauty of Zoom and Teams and other virtual platforms is that I can just quickly share my screen and show where the beams went. I mean, Shanker, you and I know what coplanar field design means. I don't know if others do. And that is basically a patient's laying supine, the machine rotates around basically in a disc, and there's no beams going superior or inferior to that disc. It's just a single plane. Now, that plane can be thick for, uh, you know, in the soup to nth dimension, but if there's any sort of like interstitial marking changes outside of that area, that's probably a systemic effect of drug, not just from the radiation. As far as I understand, I don't think radiation scarring fibrosis necessarily triggers a diffuse bilateral pulmonary situation. I think that you know, if the medical oncologist and the respiratory physician look at, you know, chest CT and there's diffuse markings, of course, they're going to know that's not the radiation, but sometimes it's not as clear cut. And I always love the opportunity to be able to show what it is that we do and how our treatment looks, our treatment designs look. And what's really interesting, a lot of our colleagues outside of our field love looking at our films because we actually have color, right? CT scans are just black and white with Hounsfield, you know, gradients. We actually have, you know, a nice rainbow color of where the dose is going. And it's always a pleasure to be able to share that with others. Yeah, actually, uh, I had just done that yesterday for a patient. We're trying to differentiate the same thing, and the colours certainly do help illustrate the picture. So can I ask you, Drew, you know, how do you reduce the risk of these potential toxicities when you're planning a radiotherapy treatment plan for your patient? What do you do to try to reduce these risks? Yeah, this is a really good topic because when we look at the data on pneumonitis risks, either from Pacific or real-world evidence data, and then there was the Pacific R real-world evidence data that was just published last Friday. This was JTO. Uh, Nicholas Gerard was first author. There was actually two Australian authors. There was Ben Markman and Ben Solomon, who was the anchor author. And, uh, you know, a study that was open at, I think, over about a dozen sites at close to 300 active centers across the world, including, I was told, 35 centers here in Australia. When you look at these real-world evidence data, you're only seeing the pneumonitis that occurs after chemoradiation is over and those patients have started DERVA. The radiation carryover toxicity could possibly contribute to that, but there may be patients who develop toxicities during the course and never make it to DERVA, and those rates are not captured. So I think it's important. I'm glad you are escalating, you know, prioritizing the discussion about this. And I think we basically are at a point now that we really should be using IMRT for all of these patients. Now, the sites I've visited so far on this week-long journey, everyone is using IMRT. And that basically helps really push and squeeze the high doses right around the tumor as opposed to depositing a normal lung that doesn't have any cancer in it. And then the second, little, maybe a little more controversial uh, option is avoiding CTV margin expansion. There aren't that many centers that do this. And the CTV, for those who aren't aware, is the concept of a clinical treatment volume. So we have a gross treatment volume, which is the visible disease that we can see. And then we kind of isotropically add a few millimeters, sometimes five, up to seven, seven millimeters around what's visible to capture what we think might be invisible microscopic disease around the tumor. 
And then on top of that, we add another margin to make sure we don't miss the target. And now your treatment volumes get pretty big. And there's a lot of normal lung in the tissue that we're radiating just to be safe. And the question is, can we omit that? And there have been some retrospective studies that shows that it doesn't compromise outcomes. And this really helps shrink the area that we're treating. And the patient's going to be coming in for 30 consecutive days. They're getting drug therapy. And this concept of treating extra lung just to be safe, I think is something that I, I've personally abandoned. I'm not going to you know, say that I have very strong evidence that it's okay. I know that my colleagues at Stanford University have abandoned as well, and there's others as well across the U.S. So those are the two pieces of advice that I have. Use IMRT and consider just dropping the CTV margin altogether. I think we've moved on, the drugs are better, and we can mop up this invisible disease without having to uh, increase the risk of uh, you know, radiation injury to the lungs. So I think that's a good point. You talk about the margins that we use and how big the treatment fields can be. So sometimes we do encounter a very bulky stage three disease and the primary tumor can be quite large in a patient. Now, my personal preference and bias is actually to lean towards surgery in those kind of indications. Rachel, what are your thoughts about how to handle a, a bulky tumor in a patient who's got stage three disease with nodal involvement? Well, we, we defer to, to you guys on, you know, whether you think you can safely, you know, and at our surgical colleagues, can you safely, you know, irradiate this or, you know, is it potentially, you know, resectable? But I think the data for in the neoadjuvant space is really, you know, growing and, you know, we certainly have had some patients where we would, obviously before the data's come out now, but give, you know, neoadjuvant chemotherapy to and then, you know, look, look at surgery because of the, the toxicities that can come with trying to, you know, irradiate a field that large. But then, of course, you know, you want to make sure that you're going to get an R0 resection. Um, you guys will know way more than I would about post-operative radiotherapy and the toxicities that come with that, which I gather is not optimal. But I think, Drew, you talked before about stage 3B and multi-station disease. And so the Nadine 2 phase 2 data that came out, they did have, I think a third of patients had multi-station you know, disease and they did have some 3Bs, although it was predominantly 3As in that study. And a significant proportion of the patients did actually get to surgery after new adjuvant treatments. I think more than in the Checkmate 816, bearing in mind that this was a phase two study, which is a lot smaller. But, you know, I guess we're guided by the team and, you know, we'll manage according to that. Rachel, one particular curly issue might be the use of biomarker selection for patients in stage three. Would you like to talk about the potential issues and what we can do with using biomarker testing prior to selection of which patients go to which therapy? Um, yeah, so that, that's a really important and, and topical question when we look at the neoadjuvant and the adjuvant space when patients are going to surgery and also in the chemoradiation derva patients. So we know in, in Pacific there was that subset of patients with EGFR, you know, mutations where there was a hint that perhaps these patients don't derive a benefit, um, but we're, we certainly haven't had our practice dictated by that in Australia. I know it has been elsewhere, elsewhere in the world. But if we look at the certainly the new adjuvant studies or Empower 010, the PDL1 status is really important in terms of picking the people who are going to best respond to immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy. And if we look at the new adjuvant studies, Nadine 2, uh, I think Checkmate 816 excluded people with an outcare arrangement and EGFR positivity. And certainly in Australia, our MBS reimbursement doesn't actually cover testing in that setting. And I'm sure all of our listeners will be aware of the issues in terms of getting the, the turnaround required. And 
I think we've, we've spoken offline about patients with stage three disease. We don't really want to be sitting waiting two, three weeks for that mutation test to come back because by that time that, that result comes back, the ship may very well, well have sailed, you know. So I think it's a very important question. And I think as a, a group, we really need to kind of push for getting that testing done um, earlier and more rapidly. So taking that on board, potentially that, that two to three week, week wait time, there might be an issue, but maybe I'll ask Drew, you know, on reflection with your DORA data, would this sway you if someone had an EGFR mutation to uh, which type of therapeutic pathway you take? I mean, this is definitely a topic that gets a lot of buzz and you, you know, you don't want to deprive someone from the benefit of a drug that, you know, can possibly help them live longer. And the DFS difference that's been reported so far with the DORA is so promising, especially for N2 disease. So we're talking about patients with N2 who are going to go to surgery, you know, are going to have N2 disease. I mean, just the difference, the benefits is so great. And I would be stunned if the OS wasn't beneficial. And the good news is that, you know, Neoadora is studying this as, as well. And that's going to create a little bit more, even more of a conundrum of whether you give it before or after. But then there's also the LORA trial, Shankar, right? There's the chemo radiation plus or minus OC. So the good news is the EGFR positive patients will have many options for them if they want to go down the OC and surgery or radiation and OC route. But with, with the bulky tumors as well, I guess, Drew, you might have seen that increased trial that was just recently presented over at ESMO. And often we get some bulky tumors that are really sitting up near the top of the lung there. Sometimes we call them pancos tumors. Do you have any thoughts on what to do with that bulky tumor? Should, should we use surgery in these indications? You know, I, I actually uh, do think like you on this one, Shankar, I think hemorrhoidation is often safer than surgery, but not always. And these larger fields, you can talk to my colleagues at UCLA, I'll often keep pushing them to operate. And then they have literally my surgeon say, Drew, I can't, I can't operate on them. Please give them chemo radiation. And, you know, the increased trial that you mentioned is really provocative for those who aren't aware. I mean, this was a study of kind of almost like a kitchen sink. It was chemo radiotherapy with the addition of epinevo. I mean, that's a lot of vet treatment. And what was really remarkable is that there was very little signal of any sort of like increased toxicity over chemo radiation by itself. It was not randomized. And the past CR rates were just really high. And the idea of taking multi-station nodal disease and downstaging them and avoiding large field radiation to me is lovely. I mean, the, the past CR rate in the operable patients in that cohort was 63%. Now, there weren't that many patients. There were 24 that made it to a resection. And even if you included the entire denominator of the 27 patients that were enrolled in that trial, the PATH CR rate is 55%. So I think there's some promising avenues of going forward. That was, you know, so that's a large field radiation as well, but it's a lower dose, not the full 60 gray, and we can get away with this. I'm really glad that Nadine too did include multi-station disease because I really don't think that multi-station was included in Checkmate 816. Uh, it hasn't been reported yet. I think that the study team is going back to uh, code this for us because this is kind of, I don't want to call it the battleground, but definitely a dividing line in the multi-D conversations where we don't know where we should not be offering drugs and surgery uh, and instead drugs and radiation. And I'll add one more thing. I mean, there may be a biological component to this. Just because there's more nodal disease doesn't necessarily always just mean more cancer as far as burden. There may be some sort of increased immunoregulation when you have that much cancer talking to that many T-cells in the lymph nodes. And so it's, it's really good that we have studies that's evaluating intensive uh, drug therapies for multistation disease because the radiation fields, as you said, you know, can be probably more toxic than surgical resection. Yeah, great response. And I think that multi-station into area is one that I find 
a bit provocative, some of the data out here is maybe pushing us to be more inclusive and more ambitious with our surgical cohorts that we might otherwise propose for surgery, but whether that's the right thing to do for our patients is a, is another question entirely. But look, Rachel, very good to have you. I think we're winding up now and thank you for joining us. It'll be my pleasure. Drew, very good to have you on this meeting and I guess we'll be seeing you in real life very shortly. Yeah, it's been fantastic to kind of pirouette across the country here in Australia. It's been great. Thanks, Shanker. Fantastic. Thank you. Again, this is from uh, the Toga team, Science of Life website. This will be found on Apple and Spotify podcasts if you want to look this up. It's very grateful to have you all listening to this podcast and we'll hopefully see you in real life soon.